Get your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me into the Old Testament the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, the fifth chapter. And we're going to read um, a good portion of this later on in the message, but uh, we're going to just read the first six verses and then verses 24 and 25. This is a message that's um, been cooking a while. Of course, pastor gets to preach the majority of the time, but I get to teach Sunday school and work on extra messages. And this is uh, one that I've been looking at for a while, and uh, it's one of the saddest messages that I've preached in a long time, but it's a message that needs to be heard, and we as a church and as a people uh, need to reprogram, refocus, and understand that this world is not our home and we have a purpose for being here. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1, Now I will sing to my well-beloved of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out of the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked and it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could I have done? What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the heads thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And, And I will lay it waste. It shall be pruned. It shall not be pruned, nor digged, But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And then in verses 24 and 25, he says, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their roots shall be as rottenness, and their blossoms shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. He has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would Meet with us here today as you promised. We 
We claim your promise also that your word will not return void, and we pray that it might accomplish exactly what you sent it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, portion of scripture is one of the saddest passages that you would read for this hour in which we find ourselves living in America. It's heartbreaking in the, in the parallels that we find it in comparison it with the United States of America. And though the United States is not a covenant people like the children of Israel who God had made promises with and even has promised that he will restore the nation of Israel and, and it'll be great again and he'll come back and rule upon it. Nevertheless, uh, this nation was founded upon some godly principles and many of God's principles apply to us as they did to Israel. I was born right in the middle of the last century in the spring of the year of 1950. And for 70 years, I have been an Eastern Oregon redneck, and, and I'm not uh, ashamed of it, the philosophy of Eastern Oregon. I love this land where my fathers died, this land of the pilgrim's pride. I stand uh, for the national anthem. I pledge allegiance to the flag and the nation it represents. But before God, I must be real with you. And if I know anything, I know this, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is righteous altogether. That God is holy and just and he deals with all people in equality, and his immutable righteousness is just that. It's unchanging. In this passage, we see that God proclaims judgment against Judah, and I shockingly note, as we, you'll see as we go through here, how the United States of America parallels Judah. Listen, God is God, and though there's going to be a few more kings following Isaiah, there's going to be a judgment that comes. Their, their, their uh, judgment is spoken here in verses 24 and 25 that we read. This land where my fathers died and this land of the pilgrim's pride is history. It's never going to be the same as it used to be. It's history. And we may want to hold out for a temporary revival as in the days of Josiah. Josiah follows this and, and we, we find that revival. And you remember that in Josiah it had gotten so bad that Josiah sent the priest down to clean out the house of God. And of all things, they found the book of God in the house of God. They'd even lost God's word. And they read it, and a great revival took place there. And so revival is possible, but it's going to be a short-lived revival. It's not going to be a lasting revival. 
There's coming a one world government ruled by Satan. And the United States of America is history. Now let me tell you where we're going to go in this message. We're going to note the historical setting. We're going to note both Judah and the United States were favored by God. We're going to note those things that have God has against Judah and how they parallel to our country. And we're going to note God's righteous judgment upon this nation. In the setting here, we find that Isaiah is speaking during the time of Uzziah. And uh, he, has, he has a ministry during, if you look in the first chapter, first verse, Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, these are all kings that are going to be around when, when Isaiah is, is, is speaking. Isaiah's ministry began in the days of Uzziah. And, and the thing about Uzziah is this, is that Uzziah ruled for 52 years in Judah, and he was a godly king. In the end, he's going to become proud and go into the temple and offer sacrifices and take the priest's job, and he's going to get leprosy and he's going to die. But he, he is a godly king for 52 years. The other kings that follow Uzziah, Jotham was a good king. Ahaz is a very evil king. Hezekiah is going to be a good king. Then after Isaiah dies, there's going to be some very short times of kingdoms. Manasseh and Ammon are going to both be evil kings. Ammon only served two years, and his own, his own servants killed him. And then there's going to be a final breath of fresh air with Josiah. And then Babylon's going to come, and there's going to be a few puppet kings underneath Babylon, but their history is over. And so this book of Isaiah is a warning, of first, particularly the first 40 chapters, is a warning that judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. And then from chapter 40 on to chapter 66, he's, he promises the, the restoration. But when he begins here in chapter 5, we have God speaking and, and saying to uh, uh, Israel, saying to Judah, particularly the southern kingdom, how that they were, they were like a vineyard that was planted. And, and he compares uh, the, the nation of Judah as, as a vineyard. And in fact, the psalmist tells us in Psalms 80 how that God spoke about taking them out of Egypt and planting them as, as a vineyard. And he said, uh, I've removed you a, a vine from, from Egypt and drove you out of the nations and planted, drove out the nations and planted you and cleared the ground and, and took deep root and filled the land. And so he's talking about here uh, 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 a parable concerning this nation. He says he puts them, if you look in chapter 5, verse 1, Now we'll sing it to thy well-beloved, a song my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath vineyard in a very fruitful hill. What that means was is that it was, it, he put them out on a plum, promontory, in, in, in essence. It's kind of like a horn on a mountain. Uh, it's like that it was put in such a place as that the sun would always, when the sun went around, it would always be shining. It wasn't going to be a shady place, but it was put out there, a very good piece of land where the sun's going to be shining on all sides of it. 
And then he said he fenced it there in, in verse 2. And that fencing has to do not only with protection, but it has to do with, uh, with uh, digging up the ground. It's a, a specific word and how that, 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 that was tilled. It's going to be walled about. And he, he's going to plant it. And he's going to gather out the stones, it says here in this passage, uh, that, 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 that those uh, stones are going to be taken out. And, and the weeds and the brambles and uh, the, the stuff that's there that needs to be cleared out. And when God came, brought Israel to, uh, to the promised land, he drove out the Amorites. He, he, he had them already ground prepared for them. Uh, when they get there, their enemies has quit the scene. Uh, they, they, they kill the kings uh, in Canaan, and they're planted as a people in the land. And then it says that he, he's going to build a tower. It talked about uh, building a tower. It's common practice back in that day to build a tower, to be able to watch over the farmland, to see the wild animals, or perhaps the thieves that are going to come and steal the grapes. And God sets a watchman there, and, he, and he's going to take care of Israel. So he said, I've done everything I could. I've put you in a good land. I've settled you here. I want you to produce. I want you to represent me. He has a wine press that, that, that's there, and it's, a, uh, it's a, a, a dip in the ground where they're going to come, and, and they're going to walk upon it, and they're going to crush out the grapes, and it's going to uh, produce. And he comes and he says, he, he says, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to look for some produce. And in verse 2, the, he says, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. And we understand from reading that grapes usually produce after three years. They've really become full-fledged producers. And, and he's put the choicest vines there. He made the wine press, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And so he goes out there anticipating the crop, and when he goes and looks at the crop, it's putting forth grapes, but the grapes it puts forth is wild grapes. And when you study that out, uh, in the in the, more in the into the original language, it's not just it was uh, the wild grapes that he's talking about. They called them stink fruit. They weren't worth eating. And uh, and uh, and one of the sad things about this is it wasn't that they wasn't that the, those plants didn't produce something, but what they produced stunk up the land. And so. It's much like today, even in, in, in uh, religious realms, you know, people are doing stuff, but what they're doing is very bad and not good. And so it's unproductive. He did everything he could. And so he, he gave the description, and then he moves the scene in, into the courtroom. And, 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 he, and he says there in verse 3, I've done all this, I planted you, gave you the best vines, I've did everything I could for you as a nation. And now I'm looking for fruit. And he said, now O inhabitants, in verse 3 of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. He said, I want you, we're going into the courtroom, we're going to have the case presented, and we're going to have a judgment between 
Me, your God, and my vineyard. And then he asked this question. What could, I have been, what could have been done more to my vineyard? What could I have done any greater? What, what more could I have done to benefit you? What more could I have done to bless you? What, where have I failed as a God to, to bring blessings upon you as a kingdom? What more could I have done? And there wasn't anything he could, more he could have done. They were without excuse. They had no excuse. And when we come to, to apply that personally to just us as individuals, Second Peter says, according as his divine power have given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. A child of God has no excuse for not living for God. He's given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. What more could he have done? And then we find here, in verses 24 and 25, how that he's going to judge them. And particularly verse 25, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble. Their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Babylon is coming down upon Israel and they're going to destroy the temple they're going to take them back captive and they're going to be devastated as a nation the judgment is coming it's coming and though again America is not a covenant people what more could God have done Israel as a covenant people is going to one day have the land from the Euphrates River all the way over to the Nile River. God has promised that to them. And that's going to happen. But does God judge nations today? He put judgment upon this, the nation of Israel because those were his people. But if you go through the history of the Bible, you're going to see that God judges nations one after another he brings judgment upon them. That we ought to fear the judgment of God. Now, I want you to go with me as we try to lay down our nation, the United States of America, uh, down next to Israel, and see if we have any parallels here. Again, I said to you that Israel is a covenant people, and we're not, but let me say to you that that uh, God's hand has been upon the United States of America. When Reverend Samuel F. Smith in 1832 penned the song America, in the beginning of that song, he said, my country tis of thee. That my country is of God. That his hand was upon it. That these United States of America, that, that in its in its foundation, and even before it became uh, United States, that God's hand was upon them. The hand of God's providence was upon uh, the ship Mayflower when it sailed to America. On September 16, 1620, the Mayflower sailed from Plymouth, England, bound for the New World with 102 passengers. The ship was headed for Virginia, where the colonists had been authorized by the British Crown to settle. 
and they were there settled underneath the authority of the king and the Virginia colony. However, the storm came, the weather was bad, their navigation wasn't the best, and the Mayflower wound up over 500 miles from Virginia up on the coast of what is now Massachusetts, and there the first permanent European settlement took place in New England in late December. On that ship of 102 passengers, there were 42 passengers that were identified as religious separatists. What were they separated from? Well, they were separated from the Church of England. They weren't going to cooperate with the Congregational Church of England. They didn't believe what they taught. And what, what they taught was an error. And, and among those separatists that, were, that was there, 42 of them, among them were a group that were directly linked to John Robinson and John Smith, who were Baptists. And realizing when they landed there far away from the Virginia colony that they weren't going to be underneath any of the laws or rules of Virginia, they realized that they needed to make some kind of a document or some kind of a ruling to give some kind of stability to their settlement. And there William Bradford sat down and he wrote what we know to be the Mayflower Compact. And in the Mayflower Compact, they guaranteed that all the laws would apply to all the people. There wasn't going to be any favoritism. And that they would be self-governing. That they wouldn't have someone dominate over them as a king, but they would self-govern themselves. That they would, that they would make laws for themselves. And the colonists would also live in accordance to the Christian faith. Well, if you study history, you'll understand that that early Mayflower Compact was the seed that took root and eventually became the Constitution of the United States. Our nation was established by people with moral character. The citizens of early America were people of moral character and conviction that was based upon the Christian worldview. And the main people had a measure of respect for God, his word, and his laws. And I'm not saying that everybody in America professed Christianity. However, there was a moral ethic that permeated society that emanated from God's word and the moral law. Honesty, and hard work, and self-discipline were virtues that were promoted in families and society at large. Lying and stealing and intemperance and cheating were looked upon as vices that were shameful and immoral. These simple principles were emphasized and embraced as being profitable for the general welfare of a society. The founders of America, many of them were very godly men and very moral men. George Washington said this, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. But it's not in our schools today, is it? It's not wanted in our Congress in Washington, D.C. today, is it? 
James Madison, our fourth president, and known as the author of the Constitution, wrote, the belief in a God all-powerful, wise, and good is so essential to the moral order of the world and to the happiness of man that arguments which enforce it cannot be drawn from too many sources nor adapted with too much care. Daniel Webster wrote, our ancestors established this system of government on morality and religious sentiment and moral habits they believe cannot safely be trusted on any other foundation than religious principles that this government, what he's saying is this government can't be trusted except to those people who have religious principles. But search Washington, D.C. and find those people today. Now, any government be secured without some moral habits about them. God's hand of providence was upon the Bill of Rights from Plymouth Rock until the American Revolution. Baptist preachers in the colonies were jailed for preaching the gospel. Among them, a man by the name of Obadiah Holmes who crossed over into the congregational territory and, and was arrested and he, he was tried to be bailed out. They, they fined him 30 pounds and his friends wanted to bail him out of prison and, and for the, just the, the purpose of it and, and for the, 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 the necessary necessity to show what's happening here, he refused uh, to be bailed out of jail. And for every pound that they find him, they put a whip, a stripe upon his back. But the savage beating of Baptist Obadiah Holmes brought international attention to the very ideas of the Puritans that were suppressing Baptist preachers. And so when the Constitution was written, and they wanted to ratify the Constitution among the 13 states. Baptist ministers pushed against their states to not ratify this Constitution until we have a Bill of Rights. Baptist people and pastors like John Leland and Isaac Backus are absolutely responsible for the Bill of Rights in the United States of America. And among them, the Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress and grievances. Yet today, <clears throat> we have pastors fighting to hold their churches open against the government. The providence of God was upon America. And we might ask the question, what more could he have done? And what has it brought forth in the year 2021? Well, a lot of stinkberries. Let me read you what Judge Roy Moore wrote. It's heartbreaking. I'm glad they're not here with us to see the mess we're in. How we've given up our righteousness for a life of indulgent sin. 
For when abortion isn't murder and sodomy is deemed right, then evil is now called good and darkness is now called light. While truth and law were founded on the God of all creation, man now through law denies the truth and he calls it separation. No longer does man see a need for God when he's in full control, for the only truth self-evident is the latest poll. But with man as his own master, we fail to count the cost. Our precious freedoms vanished, and our liberty is lost. Children are told they can't pray, and they teach them evolution. When will they learn the fear of God is the only true solution? Now, quickly note with me the woes that were pronounced upon Israel. The woe, you see of the first one in verse 8. But that woe, it's a lamenting. It's as in a funeral. The context is that this nation is dying and woes are going out. There's, you know, I remember the funeral of my grandmother and then the next the funeral of my father and the funeral of my mother and the woe that takes place and and the heartache, and, and, and this last, you know, 2020 has not been good for anyone, but what has taken place in the United States of America politically, it, it, is, it is heartbreaking. But we need to come to understand something. This world has never been our home. And we need to refocus and understand what we're doing here. I'm not against Trump saying we're going to try to make America great again, but that's not the issue. It's the souls of men. And we particularly, as God's children, need to get back focused on what God has us here to do. And so let's look at these woes. In verse 8 through 10, it's a woe of materialism. He says, but unto them that join house to house and lay field to field till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In, my ears, in mine ears said the Lord of hosts of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without the inhabitants. Yea, ten acres, ten acres of vineyards shall yield one bath, and the seed of a homer shall ye yield an ephod. And so what he's saying here is when they're joining house to house is that these greedy land grabbers were buying every house in sight, every piece of land in sight, and they become, their property had become isolated. It's kind of like these small farms in the Midwest and even in Oregon where I grew up. Well, you used to be on every little place there was a farm and there was a little house there and there was a family there and they're scratching out a living there. But they came in and they just buy it up and buy it up and buy it up and only one man controls it. Well, this is what was happening here. They were buying it all up. There was houses there on that property, but nobody was living in it. They were, they were just land grabbers, wanting more and more and more, not thinking about anybody 
but themselves and, and the great kingdom that they could build. Time Magazine, speaking of America, said, it's like an unloved child with an ice cream cone, fat and full of pimples and screaming for more. You know what causes inflation in a country? One simple thing. I can explain it to you. All the economists notwithstanding, inflation is caused by greed, just plain greed. And that's what our, our country worships the God of materialism. And basically when he says here, when he talks about 10 acres of vineyard and one bath, what he is saying is that, that I'm going to judge you and, and you can have 10 pounds of seed and plant that seed in the ground and it's only going to produce one pound of produce. My judgment is upon you, he says. But the point is materialism. This, we, we worship in America today, we worship the God of mammon. Look in verse 11. He talks about pleasure-seeking and drunkenness. Warn to them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continued until night till wine inflamed them and the harp and the viol and the tabret and the pipe and the wine and their feast. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. He's talking about our nation. We have this party-hardy mindset that we're going to eat, drink, and, and be merry. That, that, that our society, if you look at our society, it's around having a good time, and it's around, a lot of it's around corrupt, ungodly music. It's interesting to me when you go to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 22, there's coming a time in, our, in the future history in Revelation 18, 22, that God's going to take away all music. Music is very, very prominent in our nation and it's very very destructive in our nation in verse 18 he's talked about materialism he's talked about drunkenness in verse 18 he talks about a defiance of God he says in verse 18 he says woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords and vanity as sin as it were a cart rope they say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. And so what he's saying, he says is, is, he's got this cord and it's like on a cart and he's pulling it. What he's saying is that their, their sins are so many that they, uh, to, to, to take them with them, to, to keep all the corruption and all the sin and all the, all the dirt and garbage that they have in their life, they, they need this cart and they put it on a road and they need this cart to pull it along with, that, that their lives are just full of, uh, of iniquity and full of sin and so much so that they can't just pack it on their back. They need to have a little cart behind them and to pull it along with them. And, he, and, he, and he's talking about how, how that uh, they, they say in verse 19, let him make speed. Where, basically what he's saying here in verse 19, where's God? <laughs> you know, where's God at? I got this whole cartload of sin and I'm pulling around. And what has God done? And sometimes I think we take a look at this world and say, where is God? Why is this going on? Well, let me say to you that not always is, uh, never is the, is the long-suffering of God because uh, he's not aware. 
It reminds me of Ernest Hemingway, who wrote a number of books and not really your generation, but he fought in revolutions. He lived a very evil, immoral life. He had numerous women, and he basically shook his fist in the face of God. And to mock God and, and the Lord's Prayer, he wrote this, this little uh, prayer. The word nada, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it means nothingness in Spanish, I believe. And so, you know, we know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, this is what he wrote, our nada, or our nothingness, who art in nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, and nada as it is as nada. Give us this nada, our daily nada, and nada or nada, as we nada or nadas, and nada, us not into nada, but deliver us from nada. Hell nothing, full of nothing, nothing is with thee. And that was his philosophy of life. And that philosophy of life for Ernest Hemingway found him one day in Ketchum, Idaho, where right next to Sun Valley, Idaho, one of the prettiest places in the lower 48, and this man who shook his fist at God and denied God in beautiful Ketchum, Idaho, took a shotgun and blew his brains out. That's the mindset of America. God is not going to be mocked by Hemingway, by Kamala Harris, by Joe Biden, or any other man. And he's not going to be mocked by the United States of America. And so we have materialism and drunkenness and defiance and moral perversion we find in verse 20, where he says, Warn to them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter, Tell me that's not America today. Stand up and tell me that this is not what we're like today. This is what we are. And let's not forget that we're part of America. Warn to them that call good, evil good, and, and good evil. We live in a country where abortion isn't murder and sodomy is considered an acceptable lifestyle. Evil is now called good and darkness is now called light. And then we find conceit and arrogancy worn to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Self-flattering fools, exaggerated egos, excessive pride, lofty appreciation of their own cleverness. And they think themselves wise enough to handle any situation. That The answer for America is better schooling and more money pumped into the social system. 